listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Footprints on Our Hearts. This week's interview is with Ruth Hopkins, who describes herself as an eternal optimist, despite having been through a varied baby loss journey, including a traumatic ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage, and the stillbirth of her son, Dexter Bear. I really enjoyed chatting with Ruth about her experiences and how she involves Dexter in her day-to-day life. We even have a bit of a laugh on the podcast. Yeah, we do laugh on a podcast about dead babies. <laughs> After all, sometimes you have to laugh, otherwise you're just going to cry. You might also notice a few bleeps in this podcast as we occasionally drop an S-bomb, so apologies for that in advance. I know that sometimes it can be hard to look at people who've done huge things in their child's memory, raised thousands of pounds, started a charity, or perhaps become a national voice on baby loss, But I think Ruth's story is proof that you don't have to do any of that stuff and that there are smaller and equally meaningful ways your child can have an impact on the world. Legacy is a very personal thing. And the only thing that really matters is that you feel able to remember and celebrate your baby's life in the way that feels most important to you. And I hope Ruth's story perhaps gives you a few ideas of how you might want to do that with your own family. I've got a bit of a personal update this week. So like many parents after Sky died, we wanted her life to make a difference. And that's one reason why I started this podcast to talk about baby loss and legacy and raise awareness of it. But we are also currently raising money for Tommies to help fund research into baby loss and support for families affected by loss. And this weekend, we will both be up in Northumberland running in the Endurance Life event. So I'm going to be running the half marathon and my husband's running the marathon. Um, Now we are both, we both have always done a bit of running, but I wouldn't say we're, we're not particularly amazingly fit runners and we're certainly not competitive runners, more social runners. We like to get out into the fresh air. We perhaps haven't done quite as much training as we should have done for one reason or the other, but hopefully we will get round um, and that will be our definition of success for this. Now, the race route for both the half marathon and the marathon are really beautiful. They go up along the Northumberland coast, um, which if you've ever been there, is one of the most gorgeous parts of the UK. It does have quite a few sections on beaches, um, which depending on whether the tide is in or out, might mean some wet feet in places. And given if you're in the UK, you'll know that we've had quite a few big storms recently. Um And I'm quite glad those are mostly out the way. It's looking reasonably dry at the moment, but it is looking super, super windy. So at the moment, the forecast is for winds of, I think, around 28 miles an hour with gusts of about 46 miles an hour. Um, And I was hoping that these winds were going to be behind us, pushing us up the coast and giving us a bit of an extra spurt. But I think they're coming on from a bit of a side angle. So it might be it might be quite a tough one 
Um, but we will battle through as we do um, and hopefully reach the end. And if you would like to support us um, and support the podcast, then we have a Just Giving page set up at Sky's Footprints, which I will pop a link to in the show notes. Finally, if you have any suggestions for guests for the podcast or you'd like to come on and talk about your experience of baby loss and legacy, I would love to hear from you. As well as talking to parents, I'd also love to talk to grandparents, other relatives or friends who've been affected by the loss of a child about their experiences. Um, if you're interested or you know someone, you can email me at alison at footprintsonourhearts.com or get in touch on Instagram or Twitter. Right, let's get into the interview. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Ruth. One thing that I really wanted to do with this podcast was to talk to people who've experienced different types of baby loss. And Ruth, well, I'm calling you my three-in-one guest. So (laughs) welcome to the podcast. To be fair... We describe ourselves as something like that as well, so that's good. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you took it in good spirit. It, it is a bit of a frivolous way to introduce you, but I think one of the things that really struck with me when I've heard you speak and on your Instagram posts is your positive approach to what you call wading through sh- And you and your husband, Dave, have been through a lot of that. Um, but before we get into the details... Let's go back to the beginning. Um, when did the two of you first think that you might want to start a family? So for me personally, and hi everyone that's listening, this is really exciting, first time I've done a podcast. Um, I, for me, I always believed that I, my kind of role in life was to be a mother um, from, you know, as far as I can remember. I was very similar with my job. I knew I wanted to be a teacher um, I had a teacher when I was in year three and she was the one that inspired me to be a teacher and I went on and did that and I just assumed that in life you got married you had children and they were and and that was it and I naively just assumed that we would be able to do that um I was 18 when I met Dave um we were engaged 11 weeks later moved in within months of being together Um, I was still at university training to be a teacher, so we decided that we'd wait until I'd finished university to get married. So all lovely, everything went well, my teaching degree went well, I got a job, and then it was, so it was probably 2014 that we decided to start trying, so it was five years after we'd got married, we'd bought our, what I call our forever home, and it was just the right time. Wow, that sounds like love at first sight, world with romance. Yeah, it was okay. I, I took a bit of persuading, but now we're 15 years down the line and yeah, he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so did it take you long to get pregnant the first time? Um, it was about six months. Um, we were sort of never, I'd say we were never actively trying, but we were never not trying. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. And seeing what happens. Yeah, seeing what happened. And then I can remember the moment that I found out we were pregnant. Um, and now when I think about that, it just seems like another a different life, a completely different life. Mm. And your first pregnancy was ectopic. I think most people know what that means. But just in case um, we've got anyone listening who doesn't, could you maybe tell us what an ectopic pregnancy is? And I guess when you discovered that 
this your first pregnancy wasn't going to be a normal pregnancy uh yeah so for me I I probably I'm one of these people that probably didn't really know what an ectopic was either I'd sort of heard about it I think I sort of knew what it was um but again you just naively assume oh you get pregnant and then you bring your baby home Mm -hmm. and so we fell pregnant and just assumed we had no reason to go to the early pregnancy unit or have any sort of early scans or anything it was our first pregnancy so I um we were about eight weeks pregnant and we were away on holiday um and I just was crippled in what I can describe as the most excruciating pain um it was horrendous and I knew instantly the pregnancy was over because I knew straight away there's no way that this pain can be anything good to do with the pregnancy mm-hmm. um we now know that what that pain was was that the fertilized egg was growing in my fallopian tube um and we weren't aware of this I'd had the symptoms of pregnancy um you know the sore breast they're feeling nauseous, all of the kind of things that you would have in the early stages of pregnancy. Um, And that pain was my fallopian tube actually rupturing. Um, But we didn't know for 10 days that it was actually my tube had ruptured at that time. So we'd spent 10 days thinking, oh, it might be an ectopic pregnancy. It might flush itself out. We'll keep monitoring. We'll keep monitoring you. And it's not until 10 days later that I actually collapsed. Um, because I was effectively bleeding internally to death um, and my tube had ruptured 10 days beforehand and they hadn't picked it up. It's a really hard thing to detect an ectopic pregnancy because your body is telling you and your blood hormone is telling you that you're pregnant, but it wasn't until I had a scan following the following the pain. I didn't know my tube had ruptured at that time, but we had a scan and they said, oh, yeah, you're pregnant but we can't find the baby. So we're going to call it a pregnancy in an unknown location. And I'm still very naive at that point. This is my first pregnancy. I've got no understanding of loss or anything or trauma or anything like that. So I'm there going, oh, okay, well, you know, it might turn up, hopefully, you know. Who knows? Just lost the baby. <laughs> something. Um, and then, I, so we were away at the time in the late days with some friends and we came home and I went to York and I was in and out every 48 hours having my HCG levels monitored for so my blood hormone. And when you have a miscarriage, um, your HCG levels drop quite significantly. When you have an ectopic pregnancy, they don't drop as quickly. And that's what they were monitoring every 48 hours. So they were looking at, has it dropped significantly? And it hadn't. But this went on for 10 days, back and forth, back and forth. And it wasn't until I collapsed in because I, I went kind of Dave said my husband said all the blood has drained out your face you're not right we need to go to hospital and I felt really faint um and then I collapsed in hospital they took my blood pressure and it was 70 over 40 and my veins were collapsing yeah my veins were collapsing so that that, at that moment they then said okay this is an ectopic pregnancy we need to get this lady into theatre um and they struggled to find a vein because my veins were collapsing so I had two anaesthetists one in either arm um and all I can remember them saying is we need to get her into theatre really quickly and I just kept going in and out of consciousness um and then it's not until I came around in intensive care and that they told me that they'd had to remove my right fallopian tube um and they said it it had ruptured so it was covered in 
I don't know if this is too much information, but it was covered in dried blood. They knew that that pain that I'd had 10 days previously was actually, actually rupturing. Um, and I, yeah, effectively been bleeding internally to death. And had you been in a lot of pain through those 10 days then? Um, I was bleeding, um, but after the initial rupture and the initial excruciating, I mean, the, I can't even describe pain like it, you know, and I've delivered a stillborn child. It was very, very different. It was like you couldn't even sit on the toilet. It was a very odd pain, but it was excruciating. And then after that had kind of gone, which I assume was after the rupture had settled itself, I then I just had a bleed to what I think they were thinking is, oh, maybe the ectopic will flush itself out or maybe it's a miscarriage. But obviously there was concern because they hadn't located the pregnancy, as it were. Gosh, so you woke up in intensive care having nearly died yeah. and lost your baby. Yeah. How how were you and your husband in those kind of first weeks after that? So I remember the doctor saying to me, you'll be back in six months and uh, you'll be back with us in six months and you'll be having your scans and you'll be pregnant again and all, you know. And actually, and I am on my Instagram handle, it says kind of an internal optimist. And I, I believe I am an optimist and I believe that's what's helped me over the past sort of four or five years that I refuse to give in to the grief. And I know everybody's different and I'm always really aware and I'm all, always try to be quite cautious of what I say because I don't, you don't want to put the way you grieve or the way you deal with things on other people. I think mine is just, this is how I deal with it. And if it helps anybody deal with it themselves, and that, you know, that's only a good thing for me. Um, so we came home from hospital. I was off work for um, about 12 weeks. I'm a teacher. So I took some, it was over the summer holidays when it happened and I didn't go back till the half term afterwards um, because physically I had to recover. They'd, um, I had a laparoscopy, but they'd gone in, they checked my other tube, they'd had to remove my tube, and I was I was black and blue. Um, and obviously then it takes a lot of kind of time to recover from the trauma of it. And But I think because it was so traumatic, it was almost like we were dealing with the trauma that I'd gone through as opposed to losing the child, if that makes sense. Mm. And did did you get much support in terms of kind of dealing with that trauma? Um, at the time, well, looking back, I, no, I don't think we got any support. I think the support was go home, get over it, and we'll see you in six months' time, kind of thing. Mm. And I think that comes down to actually, there's very little known about ectopic pregnancies, and I don't know if it's that because we don't know that much about it, we then also don't offer that much support for it, um, or whether it was just oh, it's one of those things, similarly to how sometimes I think miscarriages are treated. Um, and so it was more, we just had to support each other and just sort of navigate our way through. And I I would say by Christmas of that year, I'd sort of turned a corner. Um, I'd gone back to work. Work was a good distraction for me. And I'd kind of dealt with the fact that this has happened, but we've got to keep going. And then by the, the summer after that, so a year after, I felt ready for, right, do you know what? I've, I've dealt with that. I can sort of compartmentalise that. Um, and let's, you know, get back on the wagon, as it were. Mm. And was there anything, are there any kind of, I guess, complications or were you told anything after, because obviously you've had, you know, one of your Philippian tubes removed and you've had this ectopic pregnancy. Was there any danger of that happening again? So, 
pregnancy, having your tube removed is almost a better thing because sometimes they can remove the egg from the tube, but you're then left with your effectively your damaged tube, which then if you got pregnant with a fertilized egg down the same tube, the chance of that happening again are very high. Um, so in that sense, they'd remove the faulty tube. Um, and for all intents and purposes, my other tube had looked and seemed fine. Um, but they did from, well, no, they, they didn't. I, from what I read about at the um, ectopic pregnancy website, which is really, really good, um, okay. it could take us a little bit longer um, because I only have one tube, but I had both, both ovaries. Um, but it was just, but sometimes they said that even if it came from the ovary that didn't have the connecting tube, the egg can like migrate itself to the right place. I don't know. It's amazing. However, it works. Um, I think this is where my biological knowledge comes to a halt. <laughs> um, they said it might take a little bit longer, but within 18 months, most women go on and have a second pregnancy and it's absolutely fine. Um, so I hadn't sort of lost hope. I just was kind of. I think I was more terrified of it happening again because now I knew about it and it was so traumatic. I was worried that it would happen again because actually it could have happened in my right, you know, it could have happened again in my other, you know, we didn't know um, and we would only have known once I got pregnant. Um, but that was a ter- that's a scare, that was a scary prospect. And how did you feel then when you did find out you were pregnant again? So I think once you've suffered a loss, you lose that joy. You lose that sheer, unadulterated joy straight away. So we were elated, like really elated. And I remember it was January the 31st, 2017. I can remember it happening. Um, And we were elated, but it was coupled with being absolutely terrified, but terrified of having another ectopic, nothing else. Hmm. Well, I say nothing else. I suppose for me, the niggle was always there of we've experienced this horrible trauma you know but people are like oh lightning once you know never strikes twice blah 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 blah. um and so we because of what had happened we got an early pregnancy scan um and they very quickly could tell us that the baby was in the right place so that was sort of one brilliant tick your other tubes working or for this pregnancy it's worked and the baby's in the right place so that was that was amazing um to know that and I suppose that was a step forward but we'll never get that unadulterated joy back ever Mm -hmm. and how was your pregnancy with Dexter in terms of I guess obviously you've 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 got the kind of that first pregnancy excitement taken away from you but otherwise um was it kind of a smooth pregnancy did you suffer a much so I again really struggled to believe that it was happening um, which I think is linked to what, well, it is linked to what had happened with my ectopic. But the early pregnancy unit were absolutely incredible. And so we had a scan at eight weeks, we had a scan at 10 weeks, we had a scan at 12 weeks, and we got to the, oh, you've got to the 12-week scan. You know, brilliant, everything's going to be fine now. Um, tell everybody. And we got to the 12-week scan. And I think because you then feel like you're part of normal society of pregnant women, um, and you do sort of, start to believe it a little bit um I think all our friends and family believed it because I think everybody hears 12 weeks are brilliant whereas I think for me I was always like oh I don't know I don't know I don't know um 
but my pregnancy was brilliant. You know, everything went really, really well. All my appointments were brilliant. I was really well looked after until the last sort of few days. Um, and then I got to my 20 week scan and I would say that my 20 week scan was the moment that I believed that this was going to happen. I thought we're halfway, we're halfway now. We found out it was a boy. Dexter's 20 week scan is the fond- one of the most fondest memories I have of him because it was just incredible. Like they could show me the roof of his mouth. Um, they told me they didn't have a cleft palate. They told me that they, like they measured his hip to his knee and his knee to his feet. And, and I can remember all these things about, oh, he's got long legs. And I said, oh, that's just like Dave. And it was just your joy. And we did like a gender reveal. And so they're just really lovely memories. And I think for me, that was the turning point. That was the point I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to let myself believe now that this is happening. And then I can't believe that four weeks later, he died. And I was very much the same. I was kind of a little bit, I was paranoid for the first three months. And then I was thinking, well, the 20 week scan, that's when they tell you if there's something wrong. So once you get through that and you get the thumbs up and they say it's okay, then like, and again, my naivety, um, because I was my first pregnancy, I was like, well, then you're plain sailing to the end. And and I think there's almost a, not a danger, but you almost, it becomes a human then as well. We knew we were having a son. We knew we were having a boy. We knew we were going to call him Dexter. It, it becomes very much more real, doesn't it? Knowing, I think, knowing the gender for us. And I'd always said, we, we I'm too much of a control freak to not find out. I had to find out. Um, and he was very definitely a boy on his scan. Um, but yeah, I feel like that made it even more kind of believable because it was a human you know you could humanize it if that makes sense yeah we didn't find out and I actually then really struggled with that when I found out that she died and not knowing yeah. then yeah. whether it was a boy or a girl yeah so you've had the 20 week scan everything's fine when when did things start to go wrong so I then it was I was 23 weeks plus uh three or four days so I it was on the weekend and yeah it was about 23 weeks and four days I think and it was a Saturday morning and I woke up and I went to the toilet um had no had had no other symptoms of anything was absolutely fine went to the toilet wiped and had what I can only describe as like a teaspoon of clear jelly to which we now know was part of my plug and I was like okay that's not normal um, and I knew it wasn't normal and you're there again going oh god okay no it's fine it's fine it's fine and so I phoned uh, the maternity unit and told them and they said um, okay well if you have is it bloody and I said no I mean it was clear transparent um, and they said oh, okay well if you have any more that's bloody or watery then phone us back and I said okay and I didn't so I didn't phone them back um, so then on the Sunday, um, we were still quite anxious, I think, because because something had happened that we knew wasn't right. Um, but a friend of mine had messaged me and she was like, oh, I lost a lot of mine throughout my pregnancy and it can regenerate itself. And, you know, and you do and you try and find the positives, don't you? And you just think, oh, it's just one of those things. Um, and we were seeing my midwife on the Tuesday um, for my 24-week appointment. So we knew, so I just thought, oh, we'll speak to her on Tuesday and see what she thinks. So then on the Sunday, I had like really awful tummy ache in the afternoon. 
that kept kind of coming and going. And it, I know it wasn't labour pains, it just was cramping, um, but it was enough to make me phone the hospital again. And I phoned the hospital and they said, okay, so rate it out of 10, like how bad's the pain? And I said, well, it's only about a seven. And they said, oh, that's quite bad then, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, well, if it gets any worse, phone us back. Um, and it didn't get any worse. It went off. Um, and through a conversation with the hospital and a kind of complaint, that we, not a complaint, I don't want to say that we complained because nothing's going to change our outcome, but it was more about is there something you can do or is there something that should have happened as a result of what's happened to us? Um, and they did say that they'd spoken to the midwife that took the phone call and said, at what point do you not take a woman in that's phoning you that's 23 and a bit weeks pregnant with abdominal cramps, like it's not normal? Um, and they did admit to that. But there's nothing that can change our situation. And I also believe that nothing would have changed had we have gone in anyway, because I think they'd have done a quick scan, seen that Dexter was okay and sent us home. Um, so that was the Sunday. Then on the Monday, I went to work. Again, safe in the knowledge of, see my moon arrive on Tuesday. We'll talk to her then. Um, and then I was sat having my lunch at my desk. There was children in my classroom doing like a couple of jobs, I can remember. And I stood up to go get something. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm weeing myself. And, I was, and you know when you try to stop a wee? Mm-hmm. And you're like, thinking, <laughs> and I'm like okay, well, the wee's not stopping and it's mm. wet and it's warm and it's definitely not wee. And there's children in my classroom, oh, my goodness. And I just managed to say to them, I can remember saying, can you just go next door, girls? And he just send through for my partner teacher. They didn't see or know anything about it because it was quite quiet. You know, it wasn't like gushing, mm. sort of, you know, waterfall sound. Um, and then that was it. And then school fund and ambulance, um and because I work in Leeds I was sent to uh, Leeds General Infirmary um they'd phoned York on the way in York said they wouldn't have been able to take wouldn't have been able to take me anywhere because I wasn't 28 weeks um and they only cater for 28 babies that are born 28 weeks or more um so I went to Leeds General Infirmary and actually I'm thrilled that I did because they were incredible um I can't fault the support we were given then um so then on the Monday they came and did a scan and they said yeah your waters have gone Dexter's okay hopefully waters will regenerate themselves but we need to keep you in um just to check things are going okay and we'll kind of come up with a plan because I think it was well you're 23 weeks and five days at this point we need and I was like we need to get to 24 weeks before we make any sort of major decisions um if that makes sense yeah. And did they, did you get a reason? Did you find out why your waters had broken? So um, we, d- we didn't get a specific reason. We got possible reasons, if that makes sense. Like, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. Um, they did offer to put me under general anaesthetic and do some investigations. But after the trauma of my ectopic and the trauma of losing Dexter, at that time, I was like, I'm not ready for that I've been through too much invasive stuff um I mean they pretty much narrowed it down to that my cervix will have like I'd need a stitch next time it'd sort of weakened or whatever and that mm-hmm. set my because there was nothing wrong with Dexter and they did all the tests on him and all the tests on me and everything had come back as it should have done and um, so they put it down to that 
Um, and then on the Tuesday, mm. so it's 23 weeks plus six days, um, they did another scan that evening, I can remember, and they were like, he looks great. He's looking like he's measuring 25 weeks. Um, he looks really healthy, lovely, strong heartbeat. He seems okay. Um, so stayed in, and the consultant came to see me, and she said, so you're 24 weeks tomorrow. Let's think about making a decision tomorrow about what we want to do, um, like whether we deliver him or whether we send you home or, you know, any of those sorts of things. And just... Because this is something that I didn't know before before you go through all this thing. So other people listening might not know. But in the UK, 24 weeks is the arbitrary date they use as a cutoff between what they class as a late miscarriage and what is classed as a stillbirth. Yeah. And I'm not actually sure what the exact reason is. I think it's to do with kind of sort of the viability, I guess, of yeah the baby um but I do know that it is different in different countries um so did you did you know that and did you have that kind of at the back of your head while all of this was going on so interestingly that year the beginning of that year was the story of Michelle in Coronation Street who had lost and had her little boy really early and so I knew about the 24 week thing because I think she'd had him in the story at about 22 weeks so I knew it, I had some awareness of it. I can remember watching it and being very upset by it and all the rest of it. Um, and I think somewhere in my head, I knew about the 24 week thing. So to me, it was like, let's get to 24 weeks. Let's get to 24 weeks. Because I knew that it was also that if I'd have delivered Dexter, they wouldn't have resuscitated him unless he'd have been at 24 weeks, which is what you're saying, uh. a viability thing. And also, again, about the stillbirth thing, we wouldn't have received a certificate of his death or his stillbirth as it were unless he was 24 weeks yeah and I think I mean having gone through it I just I can't imagine how that that sort of added weight and how hard it must be for parents who lose their child you know just before that because it's like you know it could be a day couldn't it and and nothing's nothing's different other than what what you get and how you're treated I mean literally 24 hours would have made the difference between and I through Instagram have met friends who I now call friends that did lose their children at 23 weeks and don't have the same sort of things that we have for Dexter they've you know and they've managed to create their own things but it's not the official things as it were okay so you've been told that Dexter's Dexter's doing well he's kicking away in your belly and you're I guess you're playing a bit of a waiting game it was it was, yeah, I mean, they just sort of said, right, we'll see where we are tomorrow at 24 weeks. And then, so we woke up Wednesday morning um, and I will always remember the Wednesday because it was the same date of the Grenfell Tower um, fire. Um, so whenever I hear that on the television, the radio, if I read it anywhere, to me, it takes me to the day my baby died. So I've got quite a... As of course, I'm terribly upset about what happened. But for me, I just want to scream, well, my son should be on the news because that's the day that he died. So that's a really stark, harsh reminder all the time. Um, and it's not something that goes away. It keeps popping up in the news as well. So when you're not expecting it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I remember waking up that morning and seeing it on the TV. And, you know, and of course, we were devastated. And, you know, I'm naive, still pregnant with Dexter and he's alive. And or was alive at that time, we believe. 
Um, and then it was just a day of just waiting. There'd been an emergency on the labour ward and they couldn't get a doctor. And to be fair, we weren't really waiting for a doctor to come and do anything necessarily. We got to 24 weeks, they would come. We weren't sort of desperately waiting for anybody. Um, and then I remember they came about nine o'clock and I'd been busy texting a friend. Um, I can remember everything so vividly, like who I was texting, what we were talking about and all of those things. And the doctor came and she did a bedside scan. And by this point, I knew where Dexter's heart was. Um, we'd had so many scans and all the rest of it that I, I was I knew where it was. And she turned on the screen and I could see that his heart wasn't beating. And she said, I think she was shocked. I would say she was probably quite a young doctor um, and wasn't prepared for it and kind of was like, huh. I'm going to go get somebody just to, you know, no need to worry at the moment. I'm just going to go get somebody just to give me a second opinion. And in that instant, I knew. And I think Dave knew. Um, and I was still kind of going, it's okay. It'll be okay. And the consultant came. And again, I could describe, I could draw her for you in vivid detail with her blonde spiky hair. And she was wearing a blue outfit. And she sat on the bed and she put her hand on my knee and turned and said, um, I'm really sorry his heart stopped beating and that he's died. And that and that was it. And that's when your world comes crashing down. Um yeah, that was the moment and that's our, that's I think that's where your life changes irreparably forever. Yeah, it's just those words, isn't it? Um and yeah, we were t- I mean we were told the same words and you know, I'm sure a lot of parents listening to this, I've also had the, you know, those words, like six words or something, isn't it? Five, six words. And, and that just changes your life. I feel my heart racing and I can feel my tears. Yeah, I can feel the tears start to prick because how do you ever fluff up those memories? How do you ever make that any better? You don't. It is just the worst possible thing that anybody could ever be told, ever. Mm. And did you have any idea what was going to happen next? So I can remember um, the consultants told us um, that what was going to happen, you know, that they were going to give me these tablets to kind of bring forward labour with a view to having him tomorrow. Um, Or Friday, no, it was Friday. So this was the Wednesday. She was like, with a view to having him Friday. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Friday? Like, I've got to live with this for, you know, 36 hours or whatever. Um, but I think Dexter knew, well, I, I, I don't think Dexter knew. I think my body knew because they gave me this tablet um, pretty much as soon as they moved us into the bereavement suite, the rosemary suite at the hospital. Um, and I remember this lovely nurse saying to me, take pictures, take pictures, take them in black and white, take them in sepia. They look really nice. Make sure you take pictures, which I was like, what? What? But okay, yeah, you know. Uh, I'm I'm so glad someone said that to you because one of the things I really regret is that we didn't. Yeah. Um and and you have some beautiful pictures Thank of you. you know you you and your husband and Dexter. enough and we weren't offered remember my baby and I so desperately wish we'd been I so desperately wish I knew about it but why would I know about it? Why would you know about it before your child's died? And I re- that's one of my things that I wish, you know, but I've got, I know I've got a couple of photos that for me will be my most treasured possession till the day I die. 
without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And I think um, I only heard about, it's Remember My Baby, I think, isn't it? I only heard about them, I think it was last week. Because um, I don't think they, I don't think they are in all hospitals or they're not in all the time. Like we, you know, it wasn't even mentioned where, where I was, but I spoke to another lady and, and they had come in. I think they're volunteer photographers who come in and, and take photos of, yeah, of your children. Yeah. Okay. So then you had to go through being induced and yeah. giving birth, which, yeah. How did you prepare yourself for that? I think I, I don't know if it's my personality, my character, I don't know. I just think I'm quite matter of fact of, right, okay, so this is what we've got to do now, you know, and I've still got to go through this. I've still got to go through the contractions. I've still got to go through pushing a baby out. And actually, you know, let's think about the black humour, the dark humour behind it. You're pushing a dead baby out, you know, on top of everything else that you're going through. Um, So they gave me the tablet. As I went to bed, well, I say I went to bed, I don't think we got much sleep that night. Um, and then they gave me another one in the morning, about seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and I can remember the contractions starting and I remember the pain that I was in with them. But I just remember thinking, I really want this to be calm. It was everything that I wanted it to be for Dexter. And I wanted it to be, to be calm and still because I just thought, we're going through so much pain. I don't want it to be panicky. I'm going to get upset now. Um, I don't want it to be panicky. And so I remember having the gas and air. Um, and I just remember it. Like I remember being for like two hours completely zoned out. I was absolutely off my face on gas and air. And it just felt really calm and still. And I felt in a really, not a good place, but I felt in a really good place to be able to allow myself to be able to do this incredibly difficult thing that I was going to have to do. Um, and then it all then ver- happened very quickly. I knew that he was coming. And I can remember the midwife had sort of left the room to go get some of them. We were like, no, you need to come back. It's happening. It's coming. And, and that last little bit was panicky because I think even if I was giving birth to a, a live baby, that last bit would be panicky because it's the fear of the unknown. Um, and then, yeah, and then he was born at 3.58. Um, on the 15th of June, 2017. Um, and he weighed one pound and 10 ounces. And there is, there's a beautiful photo, which um, I think you shared a few times on Facebook, uh, or oh, sorry, Instagram, of you and Dave in the hospital. And you're holding Dexter and he's wrapped in this little blanket and you have this most amazing smile yeah. on your face. Yeah. How how did it feel holding him and spending time with him after his birth? I would say again, being with Dexter at that time, again, I've got millions and millions of regrets because I just, it wasn't enough. And it there's things that we didn't do that I wish we'd done, but there's nobody there saying to you, other than that lady, that nurse that said to me, take photos. Nobody said to me, do you want to read him a bedtime story? Do you want to give him a bath? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I and I just wish that it's awful, isn't it? Because why would you want to give a pe- parents a guide that says, do all of these things with your dead baby? And I understand that. I really do. But I, for me, I'm so thankful that the things that we did do, so we had him blessed. Um, Dave's got some of the words from his blessing tattooed on his arm and I know that means a lot to him and 
we had him blessed and we, you know, held him and spent a lot of time with him. And I did more so than other people. I mean, Dave didn't even want to hold him. And I remember saying to him, please hold him because you will regret it for the rest of your days. Um, and he did. And I'm so glad that he did. And he's happy that he did. But I've got a photo of Dave in that moment. And the, it breaks my heart looking at that photo because he is just a broken man trying to raise a small smile. Um, and then by that time on that night, I was absolutely exhausted, like tired that I had never known. And I just wanted to have a bath and go to sleep. Um, and we'd made a decision and I really regret this decision now. Um, but also I don't regret it because I know that at that time it was the right decision for us. So I wish we'd slept with him that night. I wish he'd slept in with us that night in his, um, little crib thing that he was in. Um, but Dave, Dave couldn't, it was too much for him. And I knew that we had to make the decision for him not to. Um, so he didn't that night. Um, but I remember as I said, I, I need to see him again before I go to sleep. Um, so he, they brought him back and we spent some time with him, just Dave and I, um, and then we spent the following day with him. That's the day that we got him blessed. Uh, and that's the day that we took that photo of the three of us. And I just remember thinking, he's my son. Why? Yes, he's dead. But nothing's going to change that. I've got to get a photo because he makes me happy as much as he's dead. And that doesn't make me happy. But he's my son and he makes me happy. And I think that's the drive behind that photo for me. I've got a photo with me and my mum and she's absolutely broken. And she really regret, regrets not having a photo where she's smiling. But at that time, she was overwhelmed with grief for me and for her grandson. Um, but I'm so thankful for that photo. And that that's the one, that one and the one where there's me and him rubbing noses. Um, are the ones that I will treasure for the rest of my life. And I think it's, I think it's easy to look back and I'm, I mean, I do this as well a lot and think, oh, I wish I'd done this or I should have done this. But I mean, at the time, like you're in, I mean, for one thing, you've just given birth, you're exhausted, you're emotionally exhausted, you're in shock. And, and I had no idea what to do or what I was supposed to do. It's just, it's not something that, as you say, even you know you don't even think about it do you until it happens to you and yeah having someone there but why would there be a manual nobody wants to think about a dead baby and Mm. I totally understand that but when you think about there's manuals to get married or there's manuals to drive a car or there's manuals to have a baby that you bring home or how to wean or how to do this and how to do that there needs to be somebody or something there saying do these things and even if you never look at them because it's too traumatic for you you've got them yeah yeah I'd agree so you had to go home without Dexter yeah and come to terms with his death which I'll come back to in a bit but I just wanted to touch on the fact that I think then you went on your your third third loss you went on to have an early miscarriage the year after is that right so we, we like to uh, say that we are trying out all the different types of pregnancy loss and hopefully fourth time, because we like to believe that we tried them all, we've had next topic, a stillbirth and a miscarriage. Hopefully the next time will be where we actually get to bring a baby home mm-hmm. um, that doesn't result in any kind of horrendous traumatic loss. 
Um, but yeah, we fell pregnant um, nine months after Dexter had died in the March. Um, and a week later, I had a miscarriage from when we found out. Um, and I would say that week was the most terrifying week of my life. Um, and so actually, I don't know whether that paid any kind of part in the miscarriage, the stress and the anxiety that I put myself under. I don't know whether it did. I don't know. I don't like to believe in what's meant to be because I think that's a lot of rubbish, you know, and everything happens for a reason. Tell me what reason my son died. There isn't one. Tell me what reason I deserved to lose my son. So I find that kind of phrasing really difficult. Um, but I think, you know, possibly the stress and anxiety had something to do with it. Or maybe it was unfortunately just one of those things. Um, and But that week was terrifying. And I think about myself now and look at that person. And I honestly, genuinely don't know how I will manage to ever get through nine months of a pregnancy. I mean, they will literally have to put me out for nine months. Like put me mm-hmm. to sleep for nine months so that I get through it. Because the... the the prospect of being pregnant for me is frightening. And I think that comes down to the fact that all we have ever known is trauma. I can understand that. I can't obviously feel it because I haven't been through what you feel, but um, I can't imagine how difficult it must be. And I think just to bring us completely up to date, because we're recording this in December 2019, and I think you're still waiting for your for your rainbow we baby and still. And it's not happening at the moment, so, you know... The wait continues, um, but I've we've gone. We've now decided that we're going to get some fertility tests. Um, I've had a couple of mine. Dave's got to do his. My GP believes that they'll all come back normal. I believe that they'll all come back normal. But I, Dave and I, for the past maybe six months, have have sort of found the living in limbo really difficult because for me. I should have been a mum four and a half years ago and I spent four and a half years not looking like a mum, not being treated like a mum by the outside world. You know, Dave and I walk down the street, we just look like a couple. You know, we don't look like the parents of Dexter or people that have gone through three traumatic losses. And it's really, really hard to think, but how long do we carry on going? How long do we carry on waiting do you know what I mean like do we give ourselves a time do we say do you know what we've been doing this for five years six years seven years are we going to stop now are we going to consider something different and even like planning your life because you must always have at the back of your mind you're like well I don't want to book this holiday in like 10 months time because what if so like for example with holidays that's a really good example we have to buy we have to book package holidays because if I booked direct flights somewhere, if I fell pregnant with a package holiday, you'd only lose like a bit of your deposit. You pay for flights or whatever, you lose all of that money. And I mean, I know that sounds really silly, but that's like a little thing. And that's the thing that's there and it lives there. And you think, oh, and also I think living with that. So Elle, um, at Feather in the Empty Nest, she did a post the other day um, on Instagram about how this time last year, her and her husband were saying oh it'll be different this time next year and I know we've done exactly the same and here we are a year later still in the same position you know still having to get up every day and deal with this grief that never ever leaves you and if you don't mind me asking how 
do you do it? Because, and I know, I know you must have some really low moments, but you, you come across as smiling a lot of the time and you do smile a lot of the time. And I mean, you said yourself, you're an eternal optimist. And for someone who has been through so much trauma and, you know, as much grief as you have, how, how do you keep doing that? And how do you keep putting that smile on? Thank you. That's really kind. I think for me, I've made an unconscious decision, maybe subconscious. I don't really know. I can't give into it. I can't give into that horrendous, heart-wrenching, pain in your chest, pain in your head, pain in your throat feeling all the time. Because to be fair, we're all living with it all the time. I know it's there and it could quite easily surface. You know, I could get caught off guard. So the day that we recorded this podcast, so yesterday was the general election. The last time we had a general election was the 8th of June, 2017, and it was the last Thursday that Dexter was alive before he died. And yesterday, I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, I don't feel right. And I couldn't I couldn't say why. And then it dawned on me. And the last Instagram post I'd done, before the one where we announced that he died, was one about votes for women. And then, like, I'd done, like, a Mary Poppins picture of um, the Jane and Michael's mum and the suffragette movement. And I look back and I just thought, God, he was alive then. I can remember doing that post. I was sat on the bed and I was having my pink grapefruit, which apparently was my craving when I was pregnant with Dexter. And I was sat having my pink grapefruit and I can remember writing that post and he was alive then. So then that caught me. That was the thing that caught me off guard yesterday. And that's something seemingly absolutely ridiculous, but I managed to find that memory somewhere in my brain and that sort of caught me off guard a little bit. Um, and now I think I will always associate any general election with that moment and thinking about me and my what I described as my former life. Um, but I I think going back to like the sort of optimism, I just can't give in to that pain. I can't live with it all the time. And I kind of think I'm really, really lucky that I've got I've got an amazing family around me. I've got we have got a really wonderful group of friends it's got significantly reduced since Dexter died significantly I mean we've lost a huge amount of friends and family um for various reasons and I'm sure there's many people out there listening to this that are probably thinking yeah we have as well but we've also gained some amazing people through what we've gone through which is horrible but gaining people that get it that really get it um so I'm lucky in the sense that Dave's amazing our marriage to me is, you know, solid and I deserve to carry on making memories and laughing and having fun and finding joy because I can't give in to this grief because it will just destroy me and it will destroy him and it will destroy the people around us. And I know if Dexter had any belief, it would be that he would want us to find some joy. So it's finding a way of finding joy with him living alongside us, if that makes sense. That really does. And I know that you and Dave involve Dexter a lot in all aspects of your life. Yeah. Could you maybe tell us about some of the ways you do that? Um, so as we're at the moment, we're in the run up to Christmas. So we do we take part in um, Jess at the Legacy of Leo, who runs all the baby loss hour things. Um, 
she created this sort of initiative of Advent to Remember. Um, and I remember when she launched it, because I'd been thinking about what can I do for Dexter's first Christmas. And it was the same year that she launched it. And I thought, that's perfect. And we decided, you know what, we're going to do random acts of kindness. We're going to do a random act of kindness every single day through Advent and call it Dexter's 24 Days of Christmas. And it just stuck. And we, so every day we do some random acts of kindness. Sometimes we can't always do it every day through like being busy at work or whatever, but there's always somebody that's done one for us and it always seems to time itself perfectly. So my mum or our friends or family, um, and it might be we leave candy canes on cars or we buy some flowers and leave them in a trolley or one of our favourite ones is we go to Costa Coffee, the drive-through, and we sort of wait and wait and wait until somebody comes up behind us and then we'll pay for their order um things like that and we just leave like a little card explaining why we're doing it um so I've got some Christmas ones that we do for every day but then I also because we really enjoyed doing that and I feel like for me doing is doing the random acts of kindness for us is a way that we can parent Dexter because I think trying to find a way to parent your child that's not here is really difficult so I'm constantly searching for ways that I can do that so I can have those sort of proud parent moments so when we do things where you know if we get a message saying oh thanks for buying our coffees or love to get any candy canes or whatever it is um for me that's a proud parent moment and that's really important so then we've done that and then we've continued doing the random act of kindnesses throughout the year so I've got some little cards that are made up that we just use all the time we've got them in the car some friends have got them and we just leave bags of sweets or leave change at the car park, anything really. Um, and I suppose that's one way that we do things throughout the year um, as a way of sort of honouring his memory. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because again, I've seen on your Instagram about Dexter going on his travels in a sandwich bag. <laughs> oh, I hope I don't get arrested for this. Um <laughs> Because somebody once told me what I was doing was really illegal. Oh, is it? <laughs> I don't know. And if I'm honest, you're going to arrest me and tell me that what I'm doing is not right. Well, I can't get my son's ashes a passport. So what we're going to do is my thought. I, don't, I really don't care. Um, so we had Dexter cremated. I don't know why we did. I can't really remember the just the thought process. You know, you're so compounded with horrendous grief. Um, but we decided that for us, the right thing for us to do was to have him cremated. Um, so we had him cremated, and I remember the phone call saying, um, "Dexter's ashes are back. Um, do you want to come and collect them?" So we travelled to the hospital to go collect them, and we're presented with them in what I can only describe as a gift bag. <laughs> And it, to anybody else that listens to this conversation that hasn't gone through it must think, oh, my God, you're, you're actually, like, what's going on? But I, and we came out of hospital, we were laughing, and we were walking, swinging the cliff bag with our son's ashes in. And, like, the, the actual thought of it is actually crazy. And even now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what on earth? Like, you're there swinging your son's ashes in a gift bag. And we then decided we were going to go out for lunch. And we were like, well, what do we do with him? Like, do we take him into Marks and Spencers with us? I don't stick him on the table. <laughs> I don't think Marks and Spencers are ready for that. Um, so we'll put him in the boot. Should we put him in the boot? Do we strap him in? Like, just very 
odd conversations that to anybody else must sound absolutely certifiably insane. So we did that. And then we were like, and then we decided I'd really like to take him to different places that we go to. That was my thing. And I just thought, you know what, let's do that. How are we going to achieve that? So we're going (laughs) to, we have these little Tupperware boxes that we only use for his ashes. We're not going to use them for like, you know, pots of sauce or anything like that for his ashes. Honestly, it's just talking about it and hearing what I'm saying just must sound insane. So we scoop a bit of his ashes out, we pop them in the Tupperware and then we put it inside a sandwich bag because we don't want his ashes, you know, spilt all over your best flip-flops or your best underwear or whatever. And there he is, tucked in his sandwich bag, tucked in the suitcase and off we take him and we just portion him out and Dave gets all worried about, oh, we're going to run out of him. Um, and then we sometimes have conversations of, oh, which part do you think this is? And, oh, honestly, endless conversations. But they they provide us with humour. And I think when you are going through the grief that you need, you need humour. So my sister took him to Las Vegas and chucked him in the fountains at the Bellagio, which was amazing. And we've taken him to Greece and various other places. And for us... We're going to keep a little bit. Um, my mum got us this beautiful sort of like trinket box thing um, engraved. We're going to keep a little bit for when we die. Um, another, you know, wonderful topic of conversation. But when we die for him to be buried or cremated or whatever with us. Um, and our ultimate goal and when I will then settle with that I'm happy where we've taken his ashes is if we are lucky enough to go on and have a family I really want to take him to Disney World and take him to Magic Kingdom. And that, for me, will be us, our family, with him in, for me, the happiest place on earth. It's where we went for our honeymoon. I've got really fond memories. And I I can imagine it must be the most magical place through your own children's eyes. Um, So that's our ultimate goal. And then I will just let his poor ashes rest in peace on the sideboard. I think it's wonderful that you've taken him all over the world. And again, this is this is probably a slightly morbid topic of conversation, but hey, this is a dead baby podcast, so we could talk about these things. But I was, because obviously they warn you and they're like, well, you know, she, you know she's only little, so you're not going to get very many ashes. Yeah. But I was actually surprised at how many, you know, at how many ashes she produced. I was really surprised, yeah. Yeah, and we scattered Sky's ashes Um on the Isle of Skye, actually, in Scotland, which is named after. And I was there and I was like, well, I'm just going to do it gently because it was only a little breeze, you know, and I didn't want it to kind of plop everywhere. <laughs> so I kind of started and I was like, still going, still going, <laughs> still going. I've been on for ages. Uh, yeah. I Anyway, so I don't know, maybe to some other people. And I imagine, you know, if you have maybe a, an adult who's cremated, obviously they're going to produce a lot more, but there were, there were more ashes than I expected, which does give you options for what you... For uh, each you sp- a tiny little spoon thing that you get, you can't really, like when you scoop it out, I mean, I do, Dave won't do it, I, it's my thing, but I, I can kind of look past it, I don't really see it as what I, I just try and don't think about what I'm doing, but also I can't really think about the idea of Dexter being cremated, because the thought of that, the real thought of actually what that means and what happened to his little body can be a really dark thought. So I try and come away from those thoughts. Um, I did have some cremation jewellery made. So I had a necklace made um, that I wear every day. 
Um, and I, the gentleman that I did it was, he was so kind and he just sent like a little sort of test tube thing off and he puts it into a necklace and it was beautiful. And I hadn't thought about cremation jewellery. Somebody had mentioned it and I thought it was the most morbid idea ever. Um, and then I, I don't know how I sort of saw something and I thought that's beautiful. Um, and I ended up getting it made and it's got his, um, it's engraved with his name and the date of his birth. And I always get comments, oh, that's beautiful necklace. Oh, that's lovely. And somebody once said to me, oh, where'd you get that from? You're going to really regret asking this question. Um, and I just said, oh, thanks. I got it handmade. Because I just thought I was in a random shop and I thought now is not the time to have a conversation. I just said, oh, it was homemade or whatever. Handmade, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I, um, we're in the process of getting something made for me. So a necklace. Yeah. Because I just wanted to keep just a little part of her yeah. kind of, yeah, with me. And do you celebrate his birthday? Yeah. So again, how do you celebrate your son's, your child's first birthday? What do you do? Um, and I remember thinking the idea of it is horrendous because he's not here and yet I can't go through the day without not celebrate. I can't not acknowledge it. Um, it's a funny one. So for me, I think he, he needs a cake because birthday and cake, it's a thing that needs to go together. Um, but I, I remember, cause I do a lot, well, previous to Dexter, I used to do a lot of baking. It was something I used to really enjoy um and that's sort of gone by the wayside now I think you lose a lot of the sort of things that you loved um I'm going to try and get back into it but I I said to myself and I think you've got to make the right decision that's going to protect your own heart as well and I I said I can't make him a cake because if it's a disaster or if it looks awful or if it's not perfect I will I'll be racked with guilt and there's already so much mum guilt when your child has died that I couldn't live with the fact that his cake wasn't right. So I remember we found this beautiful cake at Max and Spencer's that had like balloons and clouds and stars and things. And but like, that's perfect. And we were both happy with, yes, it's not a homemade cake. And if it had been alive, it would have been. But let's just do the thing that's going to help us the most. So we did that. And he had candles and it said, happy first birthday, Dexter. On. I can't sing to him. I find the singing thing. I don't know. I'm happy for other people to sing and I'm happy to listen to it, but I can't sing happy birthday to him myself because it doesn't feel happy. But equally, I need to feel happy in the fact that we've celebrated him. Um, I don't know if that comes across in the right way that I mean it. Um, we buy him cards. We um, He's got a bench. I don't know if you've seen that we've bought him a bench. I did talk about it, Baby Loss, our live. Um, because we didn't choose to have him buried, there isn't anywhere, and because we've kept his ashes, that he doesn't have a plaque anywhere, as it were. Um, so we decided we did a sponsored walk um, to a local park that we decided we wanted to get to get a bench, um, and all his little friends. We all it was called Dexter's Big Toddle, and we all toddled down to the park. And the park is the park that I've grown up going to, and it was the same park that I went to. Um, on my first school trip when I was four, when I was in reception. So it's a part that I've visited for 25 odd years. Um, and we just decided that was the place that we wanted it to be. And it is one of the best decisions that we've made that have, has come from this because the park's beautiful 
And I, it's a really nice thought for me to think when and if we're lucky enough to go on and have a family, we can always go there and he is there and we can sit and we can play and we can talk and we can have a picnic and he's there and he's part of that. So although he's not part of the family things that we potentially are doing, in that moment, he's there. Um, so we... Um, yeah, and I, I loved the idea of Dexter's Bench and I think that's, I think it's a really lovely way not just to remember your son but to create a legacy for him and I know since you said that every time now I go past a bench which is dedicated to someone I always think of them and I actually I usually remember Dexter as well because you mentioned it and I think that's just such a nice thing to to do and to have other people thinking about it and that's part of it so for Dave and I it's really nice to think that somebody sits on his bench and says his name or wonders about him and might say, oh, Dexter, or I wonder who Dexter was. And that is such a heartwarming feeling for me to think that it's not just me that has to say his name, that there's other people, strangers, that are also thinking and wondering about him. Um, and that's a really lovely feeling. So we often go there on his birthday and we go plenty of other times during the year and we leave random acts of kindness on his bench often when we visit. Um it's been a really good thing for us and I and I hope if we go on to have a family it'll be somewhere that we can go that where that like I say he's there and we can create memories and feel like he's part of those memories uh, and I think just as a final question um because let's face it parenting as you said parenting a child who's not here is rather more complex than parenting a living child yeah. and I think particularly in terms of people who haven't been through that and are looking at it from an outside perspective how they perceive that um, and how they may treat you. And I think you maybe touched on that a bit in terms of having lost some friends. Mm. What would you tell someone who maybe perhaps wants to be a bit more active in parenting their child, but is maybe afraid of judgment or what other people might think of them? It's really hard. And I know I can often be a people pleaser or I will often worry about what people think. Um, and I know I had some really difficult times when he'd first when he died, probably the first year of his death, trying to establish what I wanted to come out of it for me in terms of like what cards I expected or how I was going to write his card or how I wanted him to be remembered. And I think you've got to lower your expectations a little bit, which feels really hard because it's your child at the end of the day and they're your number one thing. Um, and, and for somebody that myself, I have high expectations of myself you know, in my job and, and, you know, other aspects of my life, I have really high expectations, but I have had to lower my, do you know what, Some somebody's done something and that's enough, you know, they've at least thought of it. Um, and I think don't put too much pressure on yourself, but equally, don't be afraid to do what you want. I, I've got to a point where I think, yeah, okay, I'm going to remember Dexter, he's my son, and if you don't like it, are you... It's very odd. There was an there was we had some kind of almost jealousy, like warped jealousy from other people because we were getting it's really difficult to describe because I don't want to say like we were getting attention because our son had died, but quite rightly you're getting people are looking out for you because your child has died and you're doing all of these nice things to honour your child and it was almost like some people couldn't cope with that like trying to find some good out of the hurt if that makes sense um I mean what would they rather you do just like 
I don't know, sit at home and become a a kind of weeping, grieving mother the whole time or? Don't try and find joy or don't try and do good things. Don't be a good person, you know, just deal with, I, I don't really know. It's a bit of a funny one. Um, it surprised me and it's something I still need to work through sometimes. Um, but we've lost a lot of people and I don't know if it's because they got bored of it and it might be that they got bored of the fact that I still talk about Dexter. I still do things about Dexter. I like people to come and visit his bench with us. I like people to do random acts of kindness. I don't expect any of those things, but they're things that fill my heart. And I know that I really try hard with our friends' children, our family's children, to talk about them and be with them and do things with them. And I think it's a really difficult thing because when your child's not here... They're not. A, there's no visible reminder of them in the sense of when your friends come and visit you, that person's not, that child's not there like they would be if we go and visit friends that have got living children. Um, but the friends that make a huge amount of effort to talk about Dexter still and include him with their children is a huge thing, like, to know that Dexter is their friend and he's their friend that lives in the rainbow or he's their friend that lives in the sky or we see Dexter every time we see a bear is a really heartwarming feeling. And so I think I've got to the point where I just think if I want to do something for Dexter, then I shouldn't be ashamed or worried what other people are going to think because I'm his mum at the end of the day and I'm sure there's parents with living children that do plenty of things for their children every minute of every day. And so I deserve to do that as well. You know, and I shouldn't need to feel like I need to have permission or I shouldn't need to feel like it's not right or it's weird. Um, Maybe it is weird, but I think I've got to live with, okay, it's weird to you guys, but to me, this is what I need to do to help heal my heart that is forever going to be broken. And I think that is a perfect point on which to end. Thank you so much for sharing Dexter's story and your experiences. Um, Would you like to tell people where they can find you online? Um, Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. Thank you for um, inviting me to the podcast. It's been a really lovely thing for me to do. And it's the first thing I've done, like anything like this. So it's been lovely. Um, You can find me on Instagram at ruth underscore and underscore her underscore bear um you can also find my blog which currently it's got blogs written on it but i haven't written anything for a while but i am thinking of doing something and that's wading through um because and that came from whenever you describe this to somebody you always say there's no other way to describe this other than it's and there is no dressing it up there's no making it any better it's and it's that you have to wade through every minute of every day and that's where that was sort of born from um so yeah you can find me on instagram um or on my blog and i'm willing to chat to you if you'd like to or you can look at dexter and look at things that we do fantastic and i'll include those um links in the show notes thank you so much for coming on the podcast ruth it's been wonderful chatting with you you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on itunes you can follow me on instagram at footprints on our hearts and twitter at skies footprints for detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for tommies please visit our website footprintsonourhearts.com <laughs>